Welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming. I am not Tom Watson. I am Damien Tambini, and I work here at the London School of Economics. Uh, and we are delighted uh, this evening to have the authors of this book, Dial M for Murdoch, Tom Watson, and Martin Hickman. Martin Hickman uh, is a journalist on The Independent. Uh, he's been there uh, for more than 10 years uh, as consumer affairs correspondent in since 2005. And he has run a number of campaigns on packaging, uh, bank charges, and, and chicken on other things. Um, so uh, dial M for Murdoch uh, and phone hacking is only a, a sideline. Tom Watson, does he need an introduction, has been the UK Member of Parliament for West Bromwich East since 2001. Uh, he was Parliamentary Secretary for the Cabinet Office uh, under the last Labour government. And in 2011, partly we might um, uh, surmise perhaps uh, in relation to his uh, work, uh, constant work, uh, unveiling the uh, phone hacking scandal, he was made Deputy Chair of the Labour Party. Uh, he's responsible for coordinating Labour's campaigning. Tom Watson, thank you very thank much. Thank you. And Martin Hickman. The format this evening is going to be, um, I'm going to ask some questions first of all, um, and I hope you uh, in the audience have also been preparing some questions um, to try and get behind the, the story a little bit. And I'm going to start with you, Tom, to try and tell us where the story started for you in relation to News International and phone hacking. Um, well, I guess there were two points of entry for me. The, the first was when I resigned as a minister under Tony Blair, and um, uh, people said it was a coup. Um, it was actually a riot, and uh, it was very chaotic and created somewhat of a media storm. And at that point, um, that was the point, we mentioned it in the book, where I was told that Rebecca Brooks would never forgive me for what I did to her Tony. Uh, literally. Um, I can laugh about it now. It was quite chilling at the time. But, um, and then I decided to stand down as a minister in 2009, having been erroneously accused of being involved in the Damien McBride scandal. Um, and thought and decided I wanted a quiet life. I'd worked in number 10. I thought, well, look, I like football. I like cinema. I'll stand for the Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee and, uh, <laughs> and enjoy myself. But is it, is, it, is it as simple as that? Because presumably, you, know, you didn't get to 2009, having become an MP in 2001, without some kind of a brush with News International. Had you, at that point, in a sense, made up your mind that there was a problem, or did you have some sense that there was a problem? I'd love to say there was, uh, uh, you know, I was basically part of the problem when I was elected, if I'm being honest. You know, I went to those receptions. I was considered, I laugh about it now, but at the time I guess I was considered a rising star um, in 2001, and, uh, you know, I had a great future. And, you know, six months into being an MP, all of a sudden I'm waving off the News International yacht in the Solent as it goes around the world as a guest of 
News International. And so I, I, I wasn't conscious, if, I, if I'm being brutally honest, uh, about the sort of corrosive power of big media um, until later on. And then I resigned, and then there was this sort of maelstrom. And, but I still hadn't thought about the actual issue until I landed on this committee. And, and, a, and a few days into, after the election, um, you know, a great journalist in Nick Davis, he broke the story of the Gordon Taylor payment. And, you know, that was the point, I guess, that my life changed in that I, I started on this very slowly to start with journey into pulling away a, what has proven to be a huge scandal. And, um, but I, I, I wasn't, you know, I'm embarrassed to say I was I was quite naive really uh, until that point, and then um, you know we know we know we now know what we know. But at, at the time, it um, at the time when they did the first day they gave evidence, we had um, we had the editor of the News of the World and the lawyer. Um, they were very evasive, and I at the time thought they were not giving us the whole story. But I had no idea what the story was, and you know there were areas where I just resolved to get to the bottom of it. And mm -hmm. and part of the great thing about it was we managed to sort of build a very small alliance of people who thought something was wrong as well. There were sort of two, three, or four civil lawyers in that space. There were a small handful of journalists, of which Martin was one. Um, there were one or two politicians who had an interest and, and we started to try and weave people together and um, you know if I, I mean if I could just probe you a little bit on that I mean there, there are two things people say I mean um, about, about how this has emerged one is that um, in a sense the individuals involved have in some sense had a brush with the sharp end of tabloid journalism. You think about Hugh Grant, you think yeah. about Chris Bryant, you think about other, other people involved. Um, you're saying that's not the case for you? It was the case, but that wasn't the reason I did it. I mean, there, there was a contra I think those, all those individuals are slightly contrarian, I would say. In, and within their own institutions, I was, I, you, know, you end up doing a bit of self-analysis. Um, you know, they're sort of like the sort of grit in the ointment in, in, in whatever area they're in. Um, certainly, Nick Davis. He, you know, he, you know, he there in the Guardian. You know, he'd never be seen dead in the sort of Guardian editorial meeting every day. You know, he disappears for three months and comes back with a Pulitzer Prize-winning story. Um, or, uh, you know, Chris Bryan. Um, Chris is never afraid to express an opinion, even if it could send the Labour Party five points plummeting in the polls. You know, so he's yeah. he's quite independent-minded. Um, and is, is it, he, I he mean, I guess, has well, he had a terrible time with the mm -hmm. with the tabloid. So I get, I guess, what you get, you know, if you've had experience of being at the sharp end of tabloid journalism, you you get to you get to understand the mechanics a little bit. Um, now, the second thing people say is. But there was a turning point, and that turning point was uh, on the eve of the 2010 uh, Labour Party conference when the Sun went out for the Tories, switch sides. In the book, you say that's when the gloves came off. Actually, no, no not uh, for uh, if if you're talking about the relationship between the Murdoch media and the Labour Party but for me you've got to remember I, I was already in the middle of this investigation about a year before um, 
I mean, part of me, when that happened at the Labour Party conference, it was a, it was a brutal act to do it the day after Gordon Brown's speech. But um, if I'm being honest, that day I probably wanted to say, I told you so. Um, but it didn't affect my sense of purpose to get to the bottom of the hacking scandal. I'd already made that decision before, quite a long time before that. So did, was um, it helpful? Was it a breakthrough for those that wanted to get to the bottom of it? If I'm being honest, the political side to that I was a distraction at that time. Um, and, uh, you know, because if there was a criticism and the way that, uh, you know, people tried to undermine the argument I was trying to make that this was a cover-up, and their argument was, it's just sour grapes, he's trying to get Andy Coulson. And, uh, and actually, I was not interested in Andy Coulson's uh, political role in any of this. Um, I was trying to get to a corporate cover-up, and you know, nobody was really prepared to take it seriously at that. E even after the um, even after the sudden change its position in my in the, in the Labour Party, you know, they just weren't in. They did they didn't want to expend the energy to dig a bit deeper. Is what I'd say. Okay, I'm going to turn to, to Martin, um, your co-author now, um, because the story for you didn't start with the book, did it? I know you two go, go back a bit further than that. Um, what was your motivation in, in writing the book, apart from uh, it's going to be a great success, I'm sure? Um, <laughs> well, uh, we knew each other at university and sort of hooked up uh, at the end of 2010 because I could see all of the Guardian's coverage and all the great work that uh, Nick Davies had done and at the same time I could see the various institutions whether it was uh, Downing Street or the police or the PCC uh, were saying there was nothing there and it was clearly something didn't connect and uh, I sort of wondered why Tom kept on banging on about this occasionally I'd see him on the TV and I'd think why is he going on about that it seems a very odd position to take <laughs> Uh, so I called him and then we started working together on it. Uh, I wrote quite a few articles for the Independent with another journalist called Carl Milmo. And uh, eventually, sort of at the beginning of last year, probably in around sort of Easter, April, May time, we, we thought actually this would make a very good book. And one of the reasons we wrote the book uh, is to put all of the story in one coherent narrative. So the great difficulty with following the story is it is very, very complicated. And most people's experience of it is very fragmentary when something breaks on the news and all of a sudden you hear a story about a particular private eye or a particular newspaper executive or a particular politician. So we wanted to write the book and put it out now so that people would actually be able to understand fully the story, grasp its implications and thus take more of an active part in, in how it's going to play out because I think the sort of policy side of it is, is very important. Now the, the, there is one aspect of the book which I have to say I thought was potentially a little bit awkward uh, in terms of the perspective of the book which is that this is clearly a book about Tom Watson's experience and role um, yet Tom Watson is always referred to in the third person um, and did you find it difficult to to, yes. to, to, to grapple <laughs> with that because you know, what, I guess what it, the, the potential problem with mm. that is that it is a book which, is, which has a perspective which, mm. has a, uh, uh, which is quite subjective but in a sense you're hiding it uh, 
I think what we've done is, is flawed. It's not perfect. Uh, we had a choice, essentially. You can either write a book in the third person or, or probably in the third person and the first person. And, um, you know, we took a decision that it would be too complicated to switch between those two styles, and therefore we did write it in the third person. However, obviously, uh, a lot of people will be particularly interested in Tom's experiences, and he is, you know, quite a significant player in this in this story, and much of his personal story uh, was untold until that time. So we decided that the best way to do it was to write it in the third person, and I think you know, there probably are a few moments in the book where <laughs> that doesn't work particularly well. Right, but, we uh, did, that we was did the best wrestle about that a lot. Yeah. I mean, you get, and, and there are probably, there, you know, there are still a million facts that aren't in the book, and we needed to give people the journey of unravelling the scandal. Um, and you know, it, it seemed indulgent to write it in the first person, uh, and so the third person attempt was a was an attempt to just try and sort of. Uh, look, I'm a character in a book I'm writing, mm -hmm. but I was trying to be a. I wasn't trying to be centre stage, and I, th I guess your polite question was really, is there too much of me in parts of the book? And you're probably right. There probably is, but <laughs> when you're writing a book and it, you're looking at it from your perspective, it's quite hard to try and at every point get the whole terrain in there. So um, yeah, I, I think we, if we were rewriting, we'd probably chop out a few bits that at the time of writing it looked like it was colour, but for a reader it might look a little indulgent. I'd, I'd be interested in hearing um, uh, about the bits you might chop out. I mean, there have been some, some, some criticisms and some, some, some potential mistakes point, pointed out, but let's go, just go a little bit back to the story first. Of what, you know, what, what's in the book? There were clearly this is a very personal story for you, and there's been a personal cost for you. You describe in terms of your marriage, uh, and in terms of your own personal life, and in terms of just uh, uh, the position you find found yourself in. Um, could you could you say a little bit about the key turning points? When when was it you realised this was something you wanted to give up years of your life? To pursue and take considerable risks because before yeah. people like you and Chris Bryant were prepared to put their necks on the line politicians if they're ambitious and this is the whole point of the story did not want to take them on okay so there were there were emotional points that um, you know I've occasionally said publicly uh, the one was a day when there was a knock at the door and my son behind the sofa and said daddy there's another nasty man at the door and for me I, I, I'm sorry I, for me I felt um, you know I can't protect my family in their living room my three year old son is terrified and then um, there was actually a point in the committee when remember I'd stood down as a minister but my wife had asked me to stand down I'd been working at number 10 to have a quieter life, to remove myself from, dare I describe it as the field of combat, to be a smaller target, to try and do something, to contribute to public life, but uh, in, a, in a lower profile way. And even at that point, the lawyers tried to remove me from the committee because they seriously libeled me 12 months before and we'd got a legal action. And so there was a point where I just thought, you, you know, is it, they will never go away. This is an, an utterly relentless force uh, of malice that uh, you, you know I, I, that is undirected. That is, you know, I just couldn't understand. And so it, it, it probably 
left me more determined to find out what had gone on. Um, but to survive that, there's a survival mechanism. Obviously, you know, having gone through the Damien McBride affair and it was put, put great pressure on my private life, in my head I'd worked out that they would traduce my character in such, to such a degree in the minds of the public that I, I would be unelectable. So I did it in the certain knowledge I wasn't going to be an MP. And I think that that, you know, and I was thinking about standing down at the 2010 election. So I think you have to, it, it, it's, a, it's a survival mechanism. It's the only way you can, if you throw yourself into something like that, you have to realise what the costs, the potential costs are. And in my view, it was the probable cost um, to get through it. And that's really what I did. So it would have, you know, I didn't know what the outcome would be. Uh, but my instincts were that would probably be the end of my parliamentary career, but there was a chance that it w we could have uncovered it. But you decided to, to take them on, as you put it, and you, you weren't the only uh, uh, MP, uh, but you were certainly one of the leading, leading MPs. Chris Bryant had also taken the decision um, uh, on various committees in Parliament to be much more forthright in his criticism, um, having been at the sharp end of, of tabloid criticism. Yeah. One of the things um, which struck me, particularly about Chris Bryant, was that um, he did so. He had been at the sharp end and humiliated by the tabloids, and yet he was re-elected. Was that something that he was re you know, re-selected, still received the support of his party to a certain extent, and was re-elected? Was that something, do you think, that politicians began to realise, well, Maybe they're not as powerful as that. Maybe we can. Well, you'd have to ask Chris that. I think Chris is, uh, I just think he's a t an amazingly resilient character. Um, I mean, he, I mean, for those of you, you again, where you've been very polite about him, he, he, his tabloid scandal was there was a picture of him on a gay dating website in his underpants. And, you know, uh, He's much better looking than me, so I didn't think he looked bad. I can't, yeah, he looked. <laughs> but but Chris Chris didn't put that picture on that gay dating website. To this day, he doesn't know how the picture got there, uh, and that is not known about the story. Uh, and around the same time, he developed a stalker, and his house. He thinks his flat was broken into. Uh, so he went through a very private hell around that time and I guess uh, you, you know I mean in the book he says it's the nearest he's ever come to considering taking his own life uh, so you know you get to a pretty low point so, so but I guess he just found the inner strength to, to to come back from that so you and others did did realize that you 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 had to speak out you you, you felt that you should speak out and in was it 2010 was it September 2010 this the speech to Parliament yeah, the biggest beasts, the red top assassins. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit? That, I think that was a very important speech. Could you tell us a little bit about the background, why, how, what oh, well, the reaction was? Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to do that because then we cut it out a bit in the book. But um, <laughs> to me, that's the most important thing I've ever said in Parliament because um, essentially I was saying I was terrified. Does everybody know this speech? Maybe we could do a little bit blast of it. Now. I can't remember most of it now, but essentially I said I was scared of the tabloid press, and we all were, and so were prime ministers, and so were ministers, and there were these unaccountable people. I think I used the phrase, they have no predators. Um, and 
you, you know, there's a there's a curious thing on YouTube where you can see my very good friend Keith Vaz, who was sitting next to me, thinking oh, I was going to give an ordinary speech where basically I just said it how I felt, and you could see his face looking from wonder to amazement to sort of <laughs> horror to then kind of oh my God, he's right, you know, and. Uh, and what struck me afterwards were lot MPs on both sides of the house said, I felt like that for years. You know, they, these people terrified me. And, you know, I've been too frightened to admit it. And, and it, was a very, it was an amazing sort of, uh, you, you know, and a, 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 a quite cathartic for me. I thought quite reckless before I went in. Mm -hmm. uh, but lots of MPs then started to think, well, you know, he's got a point, I think. Well, I'm just, just thinking about historical... Parallels. I mean, you know, you, did you were, were you thinking that you might have been echoing Burke in his famous <laughs> fourth fourth no. estate speech, no. or just a, a, a bit earlier, the, the the last chance saloon of David Mellor? No, I, no, because obviously in my life I've got a very chaotic life, uh, and so I only wrote the speech about ninety minutes before I got in the chamber, mm -hmm. and I was frantically bashing away at the keyboard. So. It's probably slightly melodramatic because I, I always, uh, that's what I'm like when I'm yeah. in a first draft. And, uh, and also I'm one of those people that always gives the first, my, the opening to my speeches are always very good, but the, the conclusions are always terrible because I've never got enough time to finish it. Um, so, um, Sounds like one of my lectures. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. but we'll come to melodrama in a minute. Um, and I, I just wanted to do, Parliament is now... And it, let's, let, let's not forget, just after the expenses scandal, Parliament is now speaking loud and strong to the press, okay, in, in, in 2010. As a journalist, when, when, do, when does Parliament, when do politicians go too far? What's the limit? I mean, are you getting flack at work? In terms of restricting the press? In mean? terms of this, in terms of him? <laughs> <laughs> um... The relationship between politicians and, and the media is obviously quite tricky. Um, they obviously seek to influence the media, um, but they're also quite scared of the media as well and the ability of the media to set the, set the weather. I mean, I think there probably is a sense of pleasure in Parliament at the moment that you know, this, this rampant, wild press has been tamed a little uh, and that perhaps a, a better balance has been established. But is it, these are subtle balances. You know, we have freedom of expression, theoretically. We have a, a self-regulated press, uh, and we have some rules which, which control how big media companies should get. These are subtle balances. In other countries around the world, um, you could argue that it is the state that is far too powerful, politicians, even parliamentarians, too powerful in relation to the media. But the premise of what you're saying is that, that the balance has got out of kilter in the other direction in this country. <clears throat> well, it got out of kilter because weak politicians allowed rampant criminality to take place. And, uh, I mean, let's, you know, this isn't about unchecked power. This is about breaches of law over many years that weren't investigated by the police, were not prosecuted by the Crown Prosecution Service, and not dealt with by politicians who should have dealt with it. Um, so... Um, you know, what is the future balance for politicians and journalism is a question we're not going to answer tonight, but um, I, I have ideas and um, 
you know, I think the lobby system is pretty rusty. I think the ecosystem in Westminster of sort of political elites talking <coughs> to each other with lobby journalists being very often spoon-fed stories by spin doctors working for ministers. In the disruptive age of the internet, I think that's an institution that's nearly broken mm -hmm. and ready to be replaced by a, a new era of open government and more transparency. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we make three steps forward and two steps back on that, but I think it's inevitable that that's where these things are going and you can see people developing their own channels of communication. One of the things in the story uh, over, over this, I, I st I'm strongly of the view that public opinion <coughs> fermented on this issue uh, partly because the traditional newspaper media ignored a story that the public felt was important because they were discussing it in social media. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, the, you you know, what's the counterfactual? Could this story have been written ten years ago, or would this have mm -hmm. happened ten years ago? It might not have done without social media. I think. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, I mean, people might have have questions they want to ask about your your your, your Twitter activities, but but aren't all of the things that you've just mentioned linked? You know, if we go back to two thousand and six, the Information Commissioner report, um, and arguably reluctance, both of the Information Commissioner to say certain things in the report and also of the Crown Prosecution Service, um, politicians in general, to respond to what seems to be very clear evidence that <coughs> this illegality um, was relatively widespread. Yeah. Wasn't that because of this overweening power of uh, particular elements in the press, uh, the failure to act. Yeah, well, well, in the sense that, I mean, the, the, this this scandal came about because of it's a failure of political leadership, and if you then track back from that point, my conclusion is it's politicians that failed the public uh, because they felt too frightened of a media organisation that just got too powerful, in my view. And so, you know, there were obviously lessons for future ownership rules, which I think uh, is very important. And one of the things I hope um, in the longer term this whole story will do is mean that the three political parties in their next manifesto at the general election have very clear and unambiguous commitments to some kind of ownership reform and that that becomes a debate that we have in the country during a general election so that, those poli so that the political parties can be held to those commitments after the election. Reform of ownership rules, I'm all for that. Um, but does it deal, would, would that kind of reform deal with the problem? Um, Crown Prosecution Service, one of a number of different agencies that, that didn't, didn't act, and you have also problematic relationships between the police and the media, irrespective of the relationship between the media and politicians. So if I'm a politician, yes, obviously I want to work very closely with work, News International, I want them to be my friends. Is, that, is the same true of the Crown Prosecution Service? Uh, well, uh, um, it, you, I think with the police you can certainly say there, was in, there were inappropriate relationships and contact and possible, possibly criminal 
relationships if if the statements from the Met Police about payments to officials uh, are accurate. And again, one of the things that helped paint the picture of of the sort of the ecosystem uh, were freedom of information requests that helped us paint the number of contacts between key people in the CPS and News International. Um, again, on this. You know, we've, we've, we've now got a more open, you know, we're making progress on open government. And, you know, so I think we helped, I think we helped map that out. And I think people will be very embarrassed when they, you know, now that picture is, now that story is being told. And mm -hmm. hopefully that will help people moderate their behaviour in the future. But you, I think your essential point is if, a, if an organisation is intent on corroding those institutions, with those kind of inappropriate laws, whether it, whether it be threatening behaviour or, you know, overweening hospitality, but on but on, then that's always going to be there. But we've got to make sure the checks and balances are in place to stop that from happening. Mm -hmm. Media ownership rules are very important, actually, mm -hmm. not just to politics, but also to these other institutions. Because, of course, the reason why the police were so scared of News International and, and did everything they could to carry their favour was because they were so powerful and important. And had they had, you know, had they not had force turn of their national press, mm -hmm. and had senior officers not thought that their careers were dependent on its blessing, uh, it's quite possible that uh, they wouldn't have acted in the way that they did. So I think you need to mm -hmm. solve that that problem in the first place by having, uh, you know, stricter rules. Mm -hmm. I, <clears throat> I want I want to come to, to to in a moment. What would be success for you? What's the end game? What would what would satisfy you? But before I do that, you've been criticised in the last week for going too far. For, um, I think somebody tweeted to me, um, ask him why he spoiled such a good report with a vindictive remark. Yeah. Um, do you, in the Select Committee report and also beyond that, have you gone too far? Well, I reject that analysis. I mean, obviously, uh, people can make their own judgment, but I, I just take you back to 2009 when we published a report. This is the DCMS Select Committee published a report in 2009 where we found the company guilty of collective amnesia, and we said it was inconceivable that others were not involved in phone hacking. And News International put out a press statement saying the select committee has been undermined by these partisan politicians who've been pursuing party political agendas and condemned the committee in a double spread editorial in the News of the World and allowed one of the committee members to write a column in the News of the World condemning, condemning colleagues for, uh, for the report. So I would say it was inevitable that uh, there would be that kind of PR strategy my own sense is that the report speaks for itself, and it speaks for itself on three continents, and that uh, there was a majority view taken for the particular piece, point on Rupert Murdoch, and had we not taken a view on Rupert Murdoch, I think people would have thought we were negligent, and I feel very strongly that the reason executives thought that they could get away with the cover-up and the reason some journalists thought that they could get away with phone hacking was because of the corporate culture at News International, and you have to, that is set from the very top. And Wouldn't it have been a more effective report if it was unanimous, and if they didn't have that option? Well, it would have been, but unfortunately I couldn't persuade four members of the Conservative Party to vote for the bits that were really important. <laughs> <laughs>
So, but at that you point, know, isn't politics about also about making compromises? Well, did, well, there were plenty of compromises in the report. Um, there were other things we could have said and done, uh, but on that key issue, we just had an honest disagreement. And you know, let me say to you, there are not many select committee reports where we have 200 people in a room discussing the merits of a report. So I don't think it's on, you know, I don't think it's a particular problem that we disagreed on a, an issue. In fact, it's probably helped public discourse. But. Um, you know, the idea that you would have to have a unanimous report for it to be effective, I don't really buy that. If, you know, that's the lowest common denominator leads to mediocrity, in my view. And, um, you know, I just wish we could have persuaded more people um, to the merits of the sort of Murdoch section. But, uh, you know, there were, we were never going to convince everyone on the committee of that. So do you still, after all this time, and after all the, uh, what you would say is progress being made, you still feel you're operating in relation to that power of News Corporation to, in your view, distort the way this story is playing out? Oh, there's a staggering amount of money being spent on PR agencies and lawyers to uh, uh, you know, win, a, win a public argument. And you can see it. You know, I mean, News International have hired Edelman PR to represent their, the management and standards committee of the organisation, you know, you, there is no doubt about it. There, there are people are gaming the mm -hmm. the media coverage, and of course they're bound to do very well at it. That's what they do for a living, you know. I mean, essentially you've got a whole load of maverick MPs and their Twitter channels against this media oligarch. It's you, you know, so. But I just think the arguments, the arguments are strong enough to withstand that mm -hmm. you know, that attack. If anybody from Edelman PR is in the room, maybe you have a question uh, uh, in, in a moment. But just one, one final point, Tom. You, yes, please you, do, if you're here. <laughs> the, doors, the exit doors are that way. You, 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 you were slightly sheepish about your uh, 2010 speech, and you, you know, maybe it was melodramatic. You know, have there been moments when you think you've gone too far? in this campaign, when you think you've maybe over-egged the pudding a bit, um, or is that your view of, of how to do politics? You need to push the boundaries. I, again, I think this sort of comes out of deciding my political career was over. I, I sort of just tell it as it is, and sometimes it's a bit rough at the edges, and not particularly calibrated, but it's how I feel. And, uh, you know, and it's very liberating to be in that position, and I don't want to get back in a box where you know, I have to sort of measure everything and factor, factor in all the consequences. I just think if you just tell it how it is and live with the consequences. Mm -hmm. Okay. Questions from the floor to either of our guests here. Uh, plenty of hands there. I'll take some, some groups. You can have the microphone. First one here, then there's a cluster here. Um, my name's Vincent Burke from Edelman PR. <laughs> no, it's actually. Um, could so you? Is it's, no, it's not actually. No, uh, <laughs> just a question mainly to Tom Watson. Um, could you? I know it's quite unpleasant to, to recount, but perhaps you could spell out a bit more about the um, level of harassment that you suffered um, from the tabloid press. Um, also, perhaps you could. Um, explain a little bit more about, about how you came to the, 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 the judgments that you did in, in the select committee. Some people said that uh, 
the comments you made about Murdoch being unfit to run a corporate were, was actually a trap to make the Tories appear to be defenders of, of Murdoch. So perhaps you could say a little bit more uh, about that. Hi, my name is Ashley Mitchell. I'm a student here, actually. Uh, I've got three very quick questions for you. Uh, number one, how important was the New York Times article in keeping this story alive? Secondly, uh, have you been lent on by senior members of the Labour Party to shut up? And thirdly, I've got a tenor on the fact that James Murdoch may become a guest of the federal uh, government. Should I try and negotiate a settlement or should I double up? <laughs> Just one more. Yes, um, the, the good work that Tom Watson has done is obviously highly, is highly commendable, but isn't the real problem uh, in the future that the work you've done is going to be forgotten, but the people are going to go on buying the Sun and the Sunday Sun and indeed the Times. And, you know, Murdoch has every... A chance of becoming powerful yet again. Uh, isn't the real problem the people who read these newspapers? <laughs> I, I, I would be prepared to say that probably a third of LSE students probably buy this time. What? <laughs> okay, Vincent, uh, you know, the harassment. Um, you know, I don't know who did this, but you know, the bins went. We had the bins gone through, and things were. People ended up looking through papers in the garage, and you know, you can imagine the picture. It wasn't pleasant, and uh, you know, the tension. There was the tension behind the scenes about sort of covert threats, and then and then I was um, I was put under covert surveillance in two thousand and nine uh, by. One of the guys was a private investigator called Derek Webb, who uh, I've got to know quite well now. And um, <laughs> I rang him up and sort of gave him my life story, and he remembered me. I was quite gratified. He followed a lot of people for News International, um, and um, but they didn't honour his contract when he finished um, working for them. So I got him to join the GMB union. And, um, he's now got an employment lawyer and he's suing them for breach of contract. So it always helps to be polite uh, to people. Uh, Ashley, uh, your three questions. The New York Times article was important um, uh, because it was the first time a News International insider spoke out. I mean, they, the, 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 their story could have been written by any British journalist. Um, but it, it it wasn't written. They got information that it had a team been put on a story, they could have easily got the information. But it was this, within it there was a journalist who was who died after a few months ago, Sean Hoare, who I thought was v incredibly brave, who came out and explained some of the dark arts that went on. And um, you know that was the first testimony from an insider that couldn't be ignored by politicians, although it was for quite a while. Um, you know, it, it, it set the ball rolling in my view. Um, was I lent on by people in my own party? There were certainly lots of people who thought I'd taken leave of my senses, um, and some of them were just kind of passing judgment because they're part of the. The system where you know essentially they thought you, you know you'll take you were sort of an undirected missile 
firing yourself into a mountain. Um, uh, you know, was there more subtle forms of intervention? Yes, I think people were trying to reach me on behalf of people in the company. But after qu quite early on, um, I think most people in my party just decided there was no point in doing that because I wasn't going to listen to them anyway. Uh, but this, I think the serious point is, yes, they do. I mean, there were lots of ways they tried to get in. Um, one point in particular, I took a call from Gordon Brown who said, um, you know, I'm sure this won't make any effect, but I think I need to let you know that Tony Blair has phoned me to ask you to call up, to, to, to hold back on this. Uh, Rupert Murdoch's asked him to call me. Now, to be fair to those three, Gordon Brown cannot remember that phone call. Tony Blair denies making the phone call, and uh, Rupert Murdoch denies it as well. But I don't think that I—I I don't think that I'm remembering a dream. I certainly remember a call like that because you know you were sort of at the end of the phone, um, and uh, thinking Rupert Murdoch phoned Tony Blair, who phoned Gordon Brown, who phoned me, and he, so anyway, um, uh, and then the real problem reading tabloids. Look the. There was always going to be tabloid journalism in the UK. I just think tabloid journalists need to obey the law when they're doing their stories. So I don't want to try and pass judgment on that form of sort of, um, you know, sort of robust journalism because I think it's been quite, it in many senses, contributes to civil life. Uh, but they broke the law consistently over many years, and that has corroded a lot of our democratic institutions. So. Um, that's really where I want to take the argument uh, and people could, you know, we're always going to have a debate about what constitutes good and bad journalism and good and bad newspapers but I think it's for others to form that view, not, not for me uh, particularly as my co-author is a respected journalist who would kill me for being that judgmental I mean, can I, can I bring you in on, on yeah. this question of whether in a sense all of this is happening at the moment of the uh, if you like, we, we've just passed the, the zenith of press power. Um, newspaper sales are declining, advertising um, is going through the floor, um, and yet we have the, the, the claim that somehow the power of the sun, people will continue to buy it. What's true? Is, it, is, is all of this happening in a sense because the power of the press is in decline, perhaps? Um, well, well two, two points. On the, on the New York Times uh, article first. That, that was very important because it independently and separately verified the Guardian's picture of what it was like inside of the news of the world. So, you know, the New York Times stuff was, was very important for that reason because before then it had just been the Guardian banging on saying there's a conspiracy. They hacked thousands of phones and everyone in authority saying no, they didn't. And the New York Times came in, independently investigated and said yes, they did. Um, as far as uh, two points, Murdoch and then the press more generally. Murdoch will undoubtedly remain very powerful once the lights are switched off at Leveson. Uh, and, you know, he has control of News Corp. Uh, it's very hard to see him being unseated unless something catastrophic happens. Uh, so he will undoubtedly remain very powerful. But he probably won't have the sway he had with politicians in the past because now uh, meetings between politicians and Murdoch and other media proprietors are registered. Uh, there's much greater awareness of his power. And so I think he will become less powerful. But you know, if you still own 40% of the national press and a controlling stake in the biggest 
uh, commercial TV network, you remain an important individual. Um, as far as the press is concerned, in a way, I think, uh, you know, it is the case that the press's power is on the way. Um, actually, I think that's not a cause for celebration. I think it's a, a cause for a lament because still most of the good investigative journalism in, in this country is done by newspaper journalists. Broadcast media, by and large, is derivative, you might say parasitic. I wouldn't use that. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and it's newspapers who drive the, the newspaper agenda. Uh, and th there's nothing wrong with that, except for the fact that some newspaper groups are too powerful and you probably don't have a proper spread of political opinion uh, in terms of the owners of those newspapers. Uh, so, yes, press power is on the wane. Uh, finances are going down, there's a big struggle to find the money because you only make at the moment 10% of the amount of money online as you do if you sell printed products and that's reducing newsrooms, it's reducing the number of reporters and actually that's quite a considerable cause of concern. And, and one of the very interesting things about this particular period has been that the press has not spoken with one voice. Obviously you have these international um, in, in one position in the debate in the Guardian um, uh, opposed uh, you have a new owner I'd be very inter interested in how Leveson is being discussed in the, in the fringes of editorial meetings but at a certain point um, later this summer, early autumn Leveson part one is going to report including policy recommendations on reform of press self-regulation do you think the press will, will be able to speak with one voice at that point or do you think that there's going to be dissent I think there probably will be reluctance to accept the, the, the full strength of the Leveson proposals. Clearly what's happening sort of behind the scenes is that the press is trying to remake the Press Complaints Commission into a softer version of what uh, Leveson might propose in the hope that uh, uh, some of the, you know, Leveson's uh, sting will be taken away by, by that. I'm not sure they'll, they'll succeed. Um, but undoubtedly, you know, will be regulated more toughly in the future, and uh, that's that's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. I mean, uh, you know, clearly there was blatant and rampant law breaking across many national newspapers. There was a culture where newspaper editors were entirely unaccountable, wielded huge behind-the-scenes political power. Those are the very unhealthy things. But isn't sorry, Tyler? Isn't it the job of journalists to harass politicians? Yes. <laughs> and, and isn't there a danger that something slightly worrying might come out of all of this? That we will look back on uh, the period up to now as one in which we had a robust press, uh, it was a relatively free press, and it held politicians effectively to account. I, 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 this is the sort of uh, the Daily Mail sort of gambit, and uh, it, it is entirely possible. I think it's a bit that, broader than that. Well, I mean, it's, it's possible that politicians try and over-influence Leveson, but the recommendations that I think will come out of Leveson, I don't want to preempt them. Um, I think he is quite wise, and I think Robert Jay is quite wise, and the team of people they'll be deliberating with, they will know that the last person you want regulating or sort of in some way forming a judgment over newspapers is an MP or politicians, and but it's perfectly possible to form a form of to, to create a form of hands-off regulation far away from government, with some statutory powers that obliges an editor to put something right when a newspaper has done something wrong. 
And what you actually get now is, with this so-called system of self-regulation, you almost get an arrogant and dumb insolence when people dare to challenge a newspaper that's done something wrong. And that is what has corroded the industry and what has damaged the reputation of many leading newspapers, I think. And uh, I think it would be wise of editors and their proprietors to form their own pro-reform position, because I think they're important for influencing this debate. And it's quite encouraging to see that they're beginning to, I think, come up with So you think ideas. Parliament and politicians simply should not have a view? A view on... Self-regulation. No, I think we should form a view, but I don't think we should be part of the. I don't think we should be part of the, whatever the new model is. I don't think we should be running it. I think it should be sort of quite far away from us. Is what I'm saying. Because Leveson um, will make recommendations to government, yes. and will make recommendations to the press for some sort of voluntary action. Well, we don't know what he'll recommend. He might say there might, you know, he might want to create a sort of an institution that's slightly more robust than that. Like, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, my point to you on Leveson, you asked to me, you, you asked earlier, what does success look like? Will it, is it worth it? I think the point will come in time when I'll be able to answer that, and that's probably if Leveson comes out with a comprehensive reform package, which I think he will, will the, will the party leaders embrace it and resist uh, the undoubted pressure they'll come under to water it down? If they manage to resist that pressure, then I think it will have been worth it. Uh, but, you know, there's quite a long way to go before we get to that point. There were some other hands. I'm keen to get more questions. Um, one here. There was one here from before. Two here. Um, my name's Dennis O'Connor. just a member of the public. Um, from Corrupt Practices Act in the States, um, in the past we've seen corporations find um, hundreds of millions We've seen uh, senior executives go to prison. Um, do you think that that's now what's motivating News International? Because the power of the American courts is much stronger than the, the UK courts. Good question. There was one more here. Then I'll take the next two. Hello, Tom. Hello, Anstice. Um, I was I was just wondering about whether you think that we've actually got to the bottom of the relationship between the police and News International because I personally think that there are some deep, unplumbed areas there that need to be uh, addressed. Hi, um, I'm Laura. I've travelled all the way from Sheffield to, uh, to hear what you've got to say tonight. Um, can I just be so bold t- uh, to speak for everyone here and say thank you for the hard work you've been doing and fighting on? And I just wanted to ask, um, over the last, say, two weeks or so, I've heard a couple of people on nationwide um, radio and in a couple of newspapers saying, we're bored of Levinson. We just, we just, it's got its old news. Um, and they're just acting like it's absolutely, you know, it's just one day's news and nothing's going to change. What would you say, both of you, to those people who don't think anything's going to change? One more, if you we have a mic there. Um, hi, I'm Connie, and my question is, this is, um, I see your hashtag is News International, your book's called Dial M for Murdoch. What about all of the other papers, and where do you think that's going to that's gonna go? Okay, shall I, shall I jump in yeah. first, Martin? Yeah. Um, 
Okay, firstly, I'm going to I'm going to juggle around. Thank you for coming from Sheffield. I was born in Sheffield. I love that place. So, uh, and I think the people who were phoning the radio station work for Edelman PR. Uh, and um, you know, the, what I know about this story is, whilst you know everyone in the media has an opinion on it, um, and some of it's healthy, some of it's unhealthy. I think people out there, whether they, they might not know the detail of Leveson, but they know something bad went on and it's not right. And they expect politicians to put it right. And so if we don't, their judgment will be quite harsh, I think. Um, uh, Dennis, I think, on Foreign and Common Practices Act, uh, I, I'm certain that this is seizing the board directors of News Corporation particularly Mr Viet Din, the former Assistant Attorney General who chairs the Corporate Governance Board of News Corporation. Um, he, he's not just morally responsible for cleaning this up, he's legally responsible. And um, were there to be actions taken using that piece of legislation in the States, um, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me that that, that may happen in the future. So uh, it's... It's a, it's a salutary lesson that white-collar crime in the States is treated much more seriously than it is in the UK. We've seen this over many years with city-style crime as well, and it, it's a lesson for me as a politician that we've got to, you know, we should always not be over... You know, we should have that in the backs of our minds when we make legislation. Um, and then I'm going to let Martin do Connie's answer on other papers, because I just want to refer to my friend Alistair Morgan here. Uh, you were modest there, Alistair. Alistair's brother was murdered in 1987, uh, and the murder has still not been solved, and there have been five investigations, and the first investigation was undermined by police corruption. Uh, and uh, the relationships between the people around the time of that included people who worked for News of the World and I'm choosing my words very carefully. Uh, and we are working to have a proper inquiry to find out why Alistair and his family did not receive justice. Um, and uh, we, in the book we mention the murder of Alistair and I'm hoping that Lord Leveson will at least nod in that direction as well in his report and I'm hoping that because of the discussion we're having around bad practice in the media um, we can uh, we can influence Theresa May to finally give your, your family the justice they deserve okay other papers um, two things you know were they breaking the law and what will happen to them uh, yes, other papers probably were breaking the law it'd be very surprising if phone hacking was restricted to the news of the world. Um, difficult for me to, to mention names, but I think it's fair to say that across uh, the tabloid world, there was probably quite a lot of phone hacking. Uh, we know there are allegations of bribery at the Sun. Again, it would be uh, somewhat surprising if the Sun was the only newspaper to have bribed uh, public officials or the police. Um, we know that computer hacking was used at the news of the world. Again, it wouldn't surprise me if other tabloid titles were also doing computer hacking. Uh, now you come to what's going to, to happen to them. Um, 
I'm really not sure, and I suspect the answer will be not very much, because a really big difference between these other papers and News International is that the police caught the News International guy red-handed. You know, I mean, they went to his home in his office and they found 11,000 pieces of paper uh, showing all of the people he'd he'd hacked uh, or is suspected of hacking. Uh, so. Really, it's difficult now for the police to go back years and years and years and try and find uh, similar evidence for private investigators or, you know, or journalists working for other newspaper groups. Because, you know, if I was a private investigator who'd been hacking phones or doing other bad things on behalf of other newspapers, as soon as I'd seen that uh, Glenn Mulcair had been arrested, I'd be having a bonfire in my my garden that night. So, uh, I think I, yeah, I don't think we'll we'll hear much about the other. More questions? Comments? One here, and then we'll go upstairs for these two. My name's David, and I'm an Australian. Um, <laughs> we're running a little experiment in what happens to a society when you give over 70% of your print media ownership to. <laughs> a man who your committee has just described as not a fit and proper person to run a company. And I'm wondering what advice you would care to give the Australian Prime Minister, Julia Gillard. Um, yes, hi, my name's Elaine de Coulis and I was a student here many years ago. Um, but I'm also trying to get into Levison and I've been trying to become a core participant since October. And he doesn't want to let me in because I think I opened another can of worms where he doesn't really want to go. Um, and I'm, I'm quite disappointed now in the way it's going, um, particularly even today when the Mail Online editor gave evidence. And I don't think he was, I mean, you know, he was talking, he was acting like he was ethical. And, and they're one of the most unethical newspapers around. And I just want, if you could comment on um, how powerful the Daily Mail will now become, or Associated Newspapers, um, you know, that, which is their holding, <laughs> which is the group of newspapers, including the Mail on Sunday. And do the politicians um, ever feel threatened or bullied by Associated Newspapers? And, and just one other thing about, sorry, the US, I should just say that I think it's really sad and unfortunate that I know a lot of people involved in this whole thing with News International are just waiting for the American government to pounce on Rupert Murdoch. And I really think what, what Tom Watson, what you're doing is fantastic, but this country really needs to get a grip on dealing with its own problems. And I think the Americans will go after him, and I think soon he'll be in front of some Senate um, committee giving evidence. Sorry. One more upstairs. Thank you, John Strafford. Um, if James and Rupert Murdoch uh, are determined not to be fit and proper persons uh, to run a company. What will happen to News International, and what will happen to their stake in B Sky B? And would you be comfortable if B Sky B had to, or they had to divert themselves a part or wholly their shareholding? Would you be happy if that was then bought by somebody like Richard Desmond? <laughs> Okay, is that, sorry, you were I thought you'd get one more. Uh, oh, um, sorry, there, there, yeah. there is one more. But do you want to make a start? Yeah, okay. Uh, David, uh, the one thing that this um, 
this scandal has done is create a lot more dialogue between people in Australia and the UK, people in, in the US and the UK about ownership and you know there are, you, you know there are cities in Australia where you can't read a paper that isn't owned by Rupert Murdoch um, and I, I know the UK, I know the Australian government are cu currently they've got their own review of um, media ownership rules that are going on and I, I hope they do look at some of the lessons uh, from the UK that show what can happen when you own 40% of the media in the UK and actually I've been talking to a member of parliament over there called John Murphy who's very very strong on this and for many years has been uh, putting arguments about media ownership rules and I, I think there will be progress in, in Australia, I hope there is. Um, Elaine, I've seen you on my computer, Do you, 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 were, you sat before Lord Justice Leveson and had a row with him didn't you, I remember, that was a few weeks ago. So. Uh, um, I mean, your point about associate, I didn't see the associated uh, editor today, but um, have I ever felt intimidated them, with them? Well, I, I have had to sue them for libel once, uh, so yes, it was a bit intimidating. Um, and then, John, your point about um, what happens if they fail the fit and proper test, the answer is I don't know what the outcomes will be, but I do think that one of the things Ofcom could quite neatly do if they were in the mood to do it would be to say to News Corporation who own 39% of um, or indirectly own 39% of B Sky B please get your share arrangements in order whereby the current arrangements are Rupert Murdoch owns 12% of the company but controls nearly 45% of the shares or 40% of the shares were they to reform their share ownership that might actually allow those institutions to put in proper systems of corporate governance and protect the, the investment in B Sky B. Um, so there are, there, are, there are useful reform measures uh, that do not mean you need to walk away from this, possibly, um, but that's certainly one uh, thing I think they should look at. How's that? Very good. <laughs> Yes, I feel quite sad and Could you just identify yourself? Possibly? Sorry? Could you just identify yourself? Um, uh, I feel quite sad and frustrated sitting here because I feel that all those lights that must have gone on when Murdoch broke the back of the um, unions with the, with the Sunday uh, Times, no, with the Sunday Times, and um, uh, what happened to those lights? I mean, what happened to us? I feel we're all implicit in this situation, and particularly those people we look to, our politicians and, and our media. Uh, and I think we really need to have a lot of questions about that. We need to have a lot of accountability uh, uh, as well, because um, otherwise we're going to see this happen more, because people who have power will, will, will hold on to power, and we will eventually be squashed by it. Any more comments? We, we need to finish at quarter two uh, because um, we're going to have a book signing. But there are a number of hands I've seen before. One here, one at the front at the top, one here. Hi, um, my name's Opie. Um, I just wanted to ask Tom Watson, in three years' time when we face another general election and Labour are canvassing for power, what would you do if Ed Miliband walks to Rupert Murdoch and gets the son to say, vote Labour? <laughs> Secondly, um, as, you, as your wife originally asked you to um, do, leave your profile to look for a quieter life, what are your plans going forward with your political career? For, for what, sorry? For going forward with your career. career. 
So we'll just take this one while the microphone's yeah. arriving. Yeah, just, just to comment, uh, John Walker, sorry, is my name, member of the public. Um, there was a great Yes Prime Minister episode where there was an editor, I think, with an Australian accent, so it was clear who they were trying to mirror image. So from the perspective of the last 30 years, we've all known this is how things have, have worked. And, and to quote, uh, I think, Tony Blair, if you, if you don't want to spend your life in politics in opposition, how else were you to gain power but to engage? Yeah. Okay. Uh, my name's Pete Chalice. Um, to what extent do you think the, the origins of uh, what we've been witnessing with News International uh, lay in the actions in Wapping? And do you think there are any lessons about the role that trade unions have uh, and should have in influencing corporate culture? Okay. Uh, the ladies about, I think you raised some very valid points and we should all uh, take them on board. And then my friend here, sorry I didn't write your name down, but I think you raised a similar point to Jonathan. Uh, in uh, Your general point is should Labour engage with the Murdoch press? And, um, you know, I was very disappointed when politicians chose to lend their reputation to the Sun on Sunday. Uh, but I'm, I don't, I'm not going to condemn them for it. They need to get. They need to. They need to talk to that audience. Um, I thought it might have been a little early to do that, given the, the bravado around actually bringing, setting the paper up. Um, and uh, it's not whether a paper endorsed you or not. It's the terms of which you have received that endorsement. And you know, let's be honest. Before 1997. The Labour Party had a policy on cross-media ownership that never saw the light of day in legislation. Uh, and we've got the current discussion about what went on behind the scenes on the B Sky B takeover with the coalition. And neither of those, in my view, were particularly pleasant experiences and both should not be repeated. Um, you, the bees talk about my sort of personal career. I have no idea where I'm going with this. I'm not. I, I haven't really thought about where where I personally go next with it. Um, the one thing I'll say is the whole experience uh, has probably made me less ambitious than I was, and feeling slightly detached from the day-to-day -day, uh, part of politics that I used to enjoy more uh, than I do now. So I really don't know. Uh, and then, uh, J Jonathan, about your, 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 I think your point is basically you've got to engage. You know, we had this, uh, this will segue into mixed point, we had this about do you engage with the sun post-whopping. Um, of course we've got to engage. And again, it's the terms of trade, isn't it? And, um, you, you know, you do it, provided you do it on the right terms, then, you know, to ignore the opportunity to get your message out in any newspaper is, anti is actually anti-politics and anti-democratic, isn't it? But you, I think you've got to hold, you've got to do it with integrity. And make your point about what are the lessons for you, of whopping uh, and uh, corporate governance. I think there is a great irony in uh, Rupert Murdoch driving the unions out of whopping, particularly if you look at the newsrooms and the, the, the National Union of Journalists 
have a code of conduct that I suspect that young reporters may have been able to use as a shield when their managers were asking them to do things that were unethical or against the law. Uh, and it might well be that were the NUJ in the newsroom at Wapping, we might not have had the phone hacking scandal that has cost the company hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, so there is an irony there uh, that uh, I'm sure is lost on Rupert Murdoch. But, <laughs> but you mentioned a, sp a specific thing there, which was relationships between the government and News International around merger decisions. So uh, during late 2010, the uh, to and froing between DCMS and uh, News International. Do you th what do you think is the answer to that? Do you need to take ministers completely out of those decisions? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely now believe it is politicians are incapable of withstanding the, either withstanding the pressure put upon them or retaining any sense of integrity or objectivity in the decision they ultimately make. And so we should take it away from them. And I, I, actually when, when Je Jeremy Hunt got up in the house and said, I'm minded, to award, you know, I'm minded to award this bid, I said to him, uh, well, I said, <laughs> I said it would shape a banana republic, which was obviously a bit tawdry, but I, I also said he would pay a high political price and I ultimately think this could well cost him his job. The bill, the bill has arrived, hasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I, you know, and I, um, we should just take it away from politicians. The bill has arrived in that sense, but we have been waiting for many months now for a green paper, which will set out the the, the legislative framework uh, for the media to replace the Communications Act. Yeah. The Communications Act has a framework for media mergers. Is there any discussion at all in Parliament about this green paper that's very late, about Leveson's potential recommendations? It's going to be a very sensitive moment when Leveson eventually um, yeah. reports. Presumably, you are arguing for some sort of a cross-party dialogue on these issues. Yeah, well, I mean, the select committee that I sit on uh, it, it will be looking at media ownership later in the year. Um, I think... On Leveson, uh, the Leveson inquiry himself, I just think the, poli the politicians and the political parties are waiting to see what comes out of the process. He's, he's still gathering evidence and fermenting his conclusions. Um, so there's a sort of there's a sort of stasis at the moment until we until we see what comes out of it. But there will be as soon as he does report, there'll be feverish activity, I'm sure. And, and but won't it be too late at that point? I mean, the, the whole tenor of the conversation was that News International, also other interests in the press, simply has the power to shape the debate at that point. If they say it's a whitewash, it will be a whitewash. Hasn't Parliament got a key role to play in shaping the debate at that moment? Yes, and, and actually citizens have as well, because I've no doubt that we need, we need citizens to speak out in favour of Leveson's recommendations, assuming they're progressive and reformist I'm sure they will be um, uh, because I think I, I think people are going to need to hear politicians will need to hear what people think and um, they'll come under immense pressure to dilute or 
swerve the key recommendations and um, it's going to be a very big test a big test for my leader and a big test for David Cameron and Nick Clegg as well well in a minute I'm going to ask the audience to thank you for, for your, your, your part in uh, putting together such a, uh, an important part of that debate with us uh, tonight but before that I have a, a couple I'm afraid of, of announcements to make um, if you have enjoyed hearing from Tom Watson, I'm not sure Martin Hickman is going to actually be speaking there, um, I could be wrong. Uh, there is another uh, debate uh, which is organised by the uh, Campaign for Media Reform which takes place on the 17th of May, which I think is at Methodist Central Hall in Westminster. Um, I uh, am, am partly interest, uh, have an interest in this, I declare an interest. There is also another debate, um, I'm saying this because I want these two to know about it as well, which takes place on the 26th of June in the European Parliament on the issue of media pluralism and media ownership. Um, and um, also, naked plug, I run something called the London School of Economics Media Policy Project, uh, which is a blog which has some funding from Soros and, and, and others, uh, and we develop media policy, among other things, on media ownership. Um, so look at the Media Policy Project website if you get a chance. Um, <coughs> All that remains is to invite you all to get your books signed by the authors and to thank them very much for such a wonderful debate tonight. <laughs>